It's time for this week's edition of the Virtual Bible Study. The Virtual Bible Study is a live, internet-only call-in program dedicated to the honest study and discussion of God's Word. Do you have a question about something in the Bible? Or are you simply interested in learning more about the Scriptures? If so, we hope you'll stay tuned tonight as we look into the pages of God's Word. The Virtual Bible Study is brought to you this time each week by the College View Church of Christ in Columbia, Tennessee. You can participate in the discussion tonight by calling 93 Three one three eight one four five six seven, or by emailing your questions or comments from collegeview.com. We hope you'll take out your Bibles and study along with us as we begin an exciting study of God's Word on this edition of the Virtual Bible Study. And we welcome you into the Virtual Bible Study. We're back for another edition, the August 28, 2014 edition. Thank you for joining us on the program tonight. My name is Jacob Gwynn. My other Greg, Greg Gwynn is here. Hello, Dad. Jacob, great to be with you tonight. Looking forward to our Bible study. Looking forward to the discussion with you and with our listeners at 877 email questions at collegeview.com. We'll also look forward to hearing from Jeff behind the board tonight. Jeff, thank you for being here to help out with the discussion. And uh, tonight is one of uh, those topics uh, that I like. Smorgasbord. Yes. We call it a listener question smorgasbord. Yes, and uh, we, it, it will be that tonight. Wow, yeah. you were pretty... Uh, you were pretty Ambitious. Wide ranging. Well, wide and, wide ranging on questions tonight. We and got six ambitious. Questions. I was saying I was looking at them today, uh, I, while I was out and wow. I thought, how in the world are we gonna talk about all these questions? Uh, well, uh, maybe one or two of them would just say I don't know and go on. Oh that, <laughs> that's what you're planning. That might on. Be it. All right. We got six questions from six listeners uh, from here in the States, uh, from our friend Chris in uh, England, and from Sarfo. And I'm not sure where Sarfo's from. I think maybe Philippines, but I'm not sure. Okay. Well, good. Uh, so anyway, we got six questions. So we're, we're, around we're not going to read. Tonight. Yeah, we're not going to try to read those ahead of time. We're just going to let you uh, keep up with us as we go along. We sent the list of questions out earlier today to our update list, but I think we're in the summer doldrums, Jacob. I think a lot of people are wrapping up summer vacations, and we got almost no response back by email. So. You're going to have to be busy in the chat room to help us out. We've got several in the chat room. The chat room, they are filtering into the chat room tonight. And, uh, well, I think it just tells us that our listeners are better at asking questions than they are answering them. Well, I am tonight at least. Let's let's just jump in, uh, Jacob. And, uh, uh, by the way, before we do, we want to remind you of uh, all the resources available on our website. Uh, We've got over 450 archived programs of the virtual Bible study there. You can find a, uh, a program on, wow, just almost any subject you can imagine. That's We've right. dealt with it at some time or another. And, and so uh, use that as a resource. Uh, get on our email update list if you aren't there already by sending us a, a, an email to questions at collegeview.com. And, uh, and of course, participate with us tonight by phone call or email or uh, or by way of uh, the chat room. Again, another email in as I speak, so we'll have a little more there. But we want to hear from you. We think our program is always better when you participate. So uh, by all means, join in. Over 450 hours worth of uh, virtual Bible study programs on our website, thevirtualbiblestudy.com. Start listening today, and, well, you won't be caught up this time next week if you, or next year if you listen to one a year, one a week, as you or one a day, I'm sorry, as you mentioned uh a few weeks ago. Lots of material there. Check it out on our website. All right. We got a question from Reggie. Reggie has asked a question. Where it's is a little Reggie long. from? Reggie's from Indiana. Reggie from Indiana. Yeah. Thank you, Reggie. Uh, a little longer question than what I was able to summarize on uh, on our update question. So uh, 
He he has been in discussion with some folks there where he goes to church, and they've been in a bit of disagreement. Uh, he said that Samuel offered a sacrifice to God in 1 Samuel 7, verses 9 and 10. We might read that. Okay. Um, yeah, I think this is a real interesting question, one yeah. that's kind of dogged me in the past. Uh, okay. The, so maybe we can dig this out. In 1 Samuel 7, uh, verses 9 and 10, Samuel took a suckling lamb and offered it for a burnt offering yeah. holy unto the Lord. And Samuel cried unto the Lord for Israel, and the Lord heard him. And as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to battle against Israel. But the Lord thundered with a great thunder on that day against the Philistines and discomfited them, and they were smitten before Israel. All right. So uh, what he said, what Reggie said, that he believes that says Samuel offered a sacrifice, but uh, some folks in the congregation disagreed with him, uh, said that Samuel was a prophet and judge but not a priest. The other, the other fellow agreed and stated, anytime you read a verse like that, it means the person had an entourage with him, including a priest. In other words, to say, and sometimes that is true. You know, for instance, uh, Solomon offered oh, thousands of sacrifices right. on the day that the temple was, was yeah. uh, dedicated. Yeah. Well, I'm here to tell you, Solomon didn't do all that with his own hand. No. I don't think he did any of it. I think that... that he provided it, and it was offered. Right. And so sometimes that expression does mean that. Uh, does it mean it here with, with Samuel? Um, he says, he goes on to say, uh, my basis for answer was uh, that he built an altar to the Lord, verse 17, in his first uh, Samuel 7, 17, in his hometown. He was of the tribe of Levi from First Chronicles 6, 22 through 30. That is interesting. You can go to First Chronicles six twenty two through thirty, and he was of the tribe of Levi. But as we as we've mentioned before, Jacob, not all Levites were priests. Right. All priests were Levites, but not all Levites were priests. I uh, mentioned him being under a Nazarite vow at one time. Samuel was a Levite. Yes, he was of the tribe of Levi. He grew up in Ephraim. Okay, right, because his dad was. He, a... And he was called an Ephraimite because okay. that's where he lived. Uh huh. Okay. But if you look in First Chronicles six, beginning at verse twenty two, you see his. His uh, genealogy mentioned there, and it, he is of Levi. There you go. Okay. All right. Uh, so we don't have a necessarily have a problem with him be sacrificing because he could have been a, a He a could Levi, have been. He could have been a priest. And so yeah. with Samuel, that's not as big of an issue. But actually, there, there's that's not the biggest question. Um, did you know that? Let me, let me find the reference here. In Judges 6... 25 through 22, Gideon was instructed by God to make a sacrifice. Uh, it says, now it came to pass the same night that the Lord said to Gideon, take your father's young bull, the second bull of seven years old, and tear down the altar of Baal that your father has and cut down the wooden image that is beside it and build an altar of the Lord your God on top of this rock in the proper arrangement and take the second bull and offer a burnt sacrifice with the wood of the image that you shall cut down. So Gideon took ten men from among his servants as did the as and did as the Lord had told him, but because he feared his father's household and the men of the city too much to do it by day, he did it by night. Uh, so there's Gideon, who was of the tribe of Manasseh, and the wording sounds like he did that sacrificing himself. Okay. Uh, I don't think Samuel maybe is as big as an issue. There was also a question about Elijah. Uh, you remember Elijah. 
when he right. was on Mount Carmel yes. uh, the with, the, with the prophets of Baal. What is that? That's First uh, Kings 18. Yes, yes. First Kings 18. Uh, Elijah, uh, he was of the tribe of Gad. Now, I suppose equivalent on Mount Carmel would be Elijah built the altar, laid the sacrifice on it, but he didn't actually offer the sacrifice. Fire came from God and consumed it. So I suppose you could quibble on Elijah a little bit. Um, we know from that that not all were authorized to offer sacrifices. Maybe the best known episode was in First Samuel thirteen. Yes. Saul, the new the new king, new yep. king Saul had been told to wait for Samuel to arrive. Yep. For for sacrifice, and he did not. Yes. First Samuel thirteen, beginning verse eight. Saul tarried seven days according to the set time that Samuel had appointed. But Samuel came not to Gilgal, and the people were scattered from him. And Saul said, Bring hither a burnt offering to me and peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. And it came to pass that as soon as he made an end of offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came, and Saul went out to meet him that he might salute him. And Samuel said, What hast thou done? And Saul said, Because I saw that the people were scattered from me, and that thou camest not within the ten days, or within the days appointed, and that the Philistines gathered themselves together at Michmash, Therefore, I said, the Philistines will come down now upon me to Gilgal, and I have not made supplication to the Lord. I forced myself, therefore, and offered a burnt sacrifice. Yeah, I'm not so sure that he really forced himself, but nonetheless. And verse 13, Samuel said, thou hast done foolishly. Thou hast not kept the commandment of the Lord thy God. Okay. And so Samuel said, what you did was wrong. Is that because he didn't wait or because he offered the sacrifice? He wasn't authorized to make sacrifices. Now, what are we going to come... I can't find the verse, and some of our listeners may help me with it. I can't find the verse in the Old Testament that says only Levitical priests could offer sacrifice. I can't find that. I know that there was some problem with the Israelites trying to uh, sort of historically, they they offered their own sacrifices and were condemned for doing it. Ezekiel 20, verse 28. Ezekiel 20, verse 28 says, For when I brought them into the land for the which I had lifted up my hand to give it to them. Then they saw every high hill and all the thick trees, and they offered there their sacrifice, and there they presented the provocation of their offering. There they made sweet savor and poured out their drink offerings. With the, in other words, they were doing it in various locations and not at the... According to their own pattern, apparently, yeah, or at their own, their own description. Not, not, not the at words. the tabernacle or temple, yeah. as, as would have been prescribed. So here's the conclusion, I think, best I can come up with. And you've dug deep tonight. You've gone all over the Old Testament here. I think that only authorized people could offer sacrifices. But I do not think that the only authorized people were necessarily Levitical priests. Okay. Sometimes God told other people to do it. Therefore, they were authorized to do it because God told them to do it. I cannot find the verse in the law of Moses that says only Levitical priests can offer sacrifices. Okay. We know they were authorized to offer sacrifices. And before you could offer a sacrifice, you had to be an authorized person. The Levitical priests were authorized people. But I cannot conclude that they were the exclusively authorized people to make sacrifices. Because Because. I think especially in the case of Gideon, we got a pretty clear case of somebody from another tribe who was told by God to do it. Now, we need need to clarify, though, because just because you can't find a verse that says that 
people other than the, the priests could offer sacrifices. That doesn't give you that wouldn't give authority. But since you can find examples of others under God's instruction given authority, then you can conclude right. that you don't have to be a priest. But to offer we know sacrifice. you had to have some specific authorization because some were condemned for offering uh, sacrifices. Some were condemned for doing. Uh, King Isaiah was the one who went into the temple and, now, and burnt incense. That was going to be my next question. In the temple, would you'd have, you had to be a priest to offer sacrifice there? Do you know? Yeah, yeah I would think so. Because we know that the, the, the high priest and other priests with him followed the king into the, into the holy place and said, It pertaineth not unto thee, King Isaiah. And oh. he was made a leper and... and uh, uh, Died a leper. Guest 597 says, I have to disagree with Greg this time. With okay. a smiley face, though. So guest 597 is doing that cordially, but disagrees. Guest 597 says, I thought only Aaron and his sons and grandsons, etc., could be priests. And that is true. That's true. They could only be priests. No, no yeah. doubt about it. You had, you had to be a Levite, but not just a Levite. You had to be a descendant of Aaron. In order to be a priest and to do, to, to do service as a priest. Okay. I have total agreement about that. Okay. The question is, Ooh. the question is, could anybody other than a Levitical priest ever offer a sacrifice without sinning? That's the question. 761 is offered Leviticus 17 uh, as a reference. Maybe a little bit more clarification there. But, uh, and uh, 761 says the problem with Saul was that he was doing it to appear to, to, appear to look good rather than in worship or sacrifice. So maybe mo- Paul, Saul's motives were, uh, were at... Uh, well, I, yeah, I think Saul was a corrupt guy. There's no doubt about that. Yeah. I mean, he, he had problems. And, he, and really, this was the first indication of the corrupt character that he possessed yeah. uh, when he did that sacrificing. Okay. Uh, but he was not, he clearly had broke a command. Samuel said, Thou hast not kept the commandment of thy Lord. So he clearly broke a command. He was not authorized. He sinned in offering the sacrifice. Uh, so, but, but my point is definitely you had to be a. a a Levite and a descendant of Aaron to be a priest, to, to do priestly work. We understand that. Priests were definitely authorized to make sacrifice to God. We know that. I can't find the verse that says that that makes it their exclusive role. They were authorized, but I can't find a verse that says they were exclusively authorized and that anybody else who wasn't a Levitical priest ever offered a sacrifice would be a sin. Sometimes it was. The case of Saul stands out very notably. But other times we see some men making sacrifices at the command of God. Gideon stands out specifically. We know he was of the tribe of Gad. Uh, I mean, he was the tribe of Manasseh. Elijah was the tribe of Gad. Uh, again, I think you could quibble about Elijah on Mount Carmel because he didn't actually light the fire. He didn't make the fire came from the Lord and consumed the sacrifice. Yeah. So I, I, I would sort of dismiss the Elijah case as maybe not pertinent. Gideon seems a little bit more pertinent. And so my conclusion is, until I uh, find it, find a better explanation, is you had to be an authorized person to make a, uh, a sacrifice. All right, that's what that's what we'll, that's where we'll leave it for now. And again, you're you're saying that because you don't have an exclusive pattern with the with the Levite, or the priest. You we don't have, have a, we don't have a, a command that says they only could do it, and we don't have an exclusive pattern because I can at least find Gideon, who serves as an exception to the pattern. Yeah. And so we just would have to say, yes, you have to be authorized. You have to you have to have you have to have authority from God in the Old Testament times. You had to have authority from God to offer sacrifice, but He gave that authority perhaps rarely, but perhaps sometimes He gave that authority to other than 
uh, the Levitical priest. And guest 597 says, I take back my statement. I assume that is in reference to the disagreeing with you. So maybe we've come to an agreement here. Leviticus 17, uh, 761 references Leviticus 17, 8, and 9. This is interesting here. Okay, yeah, this is that. Yeah, this may be the verse we're looking but for. But no, it, not necessarily. Uh, and you shall say to them, who, whatever man of the house of Israel or of the strangers who dwell among you, who offers a burnt offering or sacrifice and does not bring it to the door of the tabernacle of meeting to offer it to the Lord, that man shall be cut off from among his people. Wow. So the sacrifices had to be made there at the tabernacle? Yeah, that's what we were saying earlier from Ezekiel 20. You know, one of the things God had against them is they were out here on every high hill yeah. building an altar and making sacrifices, and he didn't want them doing that. But again, we have the Elijah uh, on Mount Carmel. We got Gideon, who, who at God's instruction, offered a burnt sacrifice someplace other than the tabernacle. All right, we'll have to study some more, I think. Uh, but and, and so I, that's the best I can come up with. I think it's a sticky question. It is. And Travis is in the chat room referencing Hebrews chapter eight verse three. Listeners are helping out tonight in the chat room. We appreciate that. Is some good comments coming in. On this uh, question, which is uh, a little bit of a stumper, uh, sorry, Hebrews 8, verse 3, For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it is necessary that this one also have something to offer. Well, that tells us that high priest uh, did sacrifice. Yeah. The, the context of that argument there in Hebrews is of Jesus being a priest. Uh, and back in chapter 7, at verse 14, it is evident that our Lord sprang out of Judah, of which tribe Moses spake nothing concerning priesthood. Uh, verse 12 says, for the priesthood being changed, there, need, there is made of necessity a change also to the law. Jesus couldn't have been a priest under the Old Testament law because he was of Judah. We agree. There's no, no, there's no dispute there. Okay. To be a priest under the Old Testament system, you had to be a Levite and a direct descendant from Aaron. We know that. Okay. That's really not our question. Our question is, could someone other than a Levitical priest offer sacrifices? My answer is typically no because they weren't authorized. But I think we can find a case or two where someone, where God authorized someone else to offer a sacrifice, and therefore I'd have to say, with exception, Levitical priests typically always yet and only yes, but with a potential exception. Therefore, I think the right way to express it is only authorized people could offer sacrifice under the Old Testament. System. It's an interesting question. Appreciate Reggie for asking it. But I think as we would read in Hebrews that uh, we no longer are uh, constrained to offer those kind of sacrifices anymore. Uh, so be grateful. Be grateful. Yeah. We don't really have yeah. to find a definitive answer tonight yeah. Yeah. Uh, so for that question. All right. That's, uh, we're running late. Let's get a break. When we get back, I had a question from Gary about the Lord's Supper. Are we supposed to okay. be sipping uh, a small amount of grape juice and taking just a pinch of a cracker, or should it be a meal? He wants to know the answer to that, and we want to hear from you. 877-381-4567. Don't go anywhere. The Virtual Bible Study continues right after this. Don't touch that mouse. The Virtual Bible Study will be back right after this. I'm Greg Gwynn, a host of the Virtual Bible Study. Thanks for joining us for tonight's program. The Virtual Bible Study is presented weekly by the College View Church of Christ in Columbia, Tennessee. Each week on the Virtual Bible Study, we simply engage in a study of God's Word in an effort to better understand it, better understand how God views us, and better understand what He wants from us in our lives. We're not studying any creeds. We're not studying any books written by men. We're just studying the Bible. And we're trying to study the Bible alone without any of our opinions or wisdom mixed in. We're only interested in what our Creator has revealed to 
to us in his word. We realize that we're fallible and cannot direct our own steps. As a result, what we think or feel doesn't really matter. All that matters is what God has said. So that's what the virtual Bible study is all about. It's pretty simple, isn't it? Thanks again for joining us tonight, and we will hope you'll make plans to join us every Thursday night for the virtual Bible study. Here's some quotes worth pondering. Prayer is the key of the morning and the bolt of the evening. Aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. Your eternal destiny will not be the result of chance, but of choice. Do not interpret God's patience for God's permission. The best preparation for tomorrow is the right use of today. When a man who is honestly mistaken hears the truth, he will either quit being mistaken or cease being honest. Man, wish I'd said that. Use your internet connection for something good. Listen to the virtual Bible study every week. Now, back to the program. We welcome you back on the program tonight. Some good, uh, um, some good uh, quotes there. Appreciate those. And we look forward to hearing from you at 877-381-4567, questions at collegeview.com. If you're looking for a popular program, you want to listen to those archives. Check out the one from January 2nd, 2014. What was it? What was it about? That was the part two of three of the doctrinal summary of the Church of Christ. Oh, I remember that. We took three weeks. To, we did. This guy on the Internet had thought he, he could describe what we believe and what we teach and what we stand for. And he was so far off base, we felt like we had to thoroughly address his misrepresentation. We did, but it's interesting. That program has been listened to over 10,000 times or downloaded over 10,000 times wow. already this year. Wow. So you might want to check that one out and check out parts one and three as well as you go through our archives. We're talking about listener questions on the program tonight, and the next one comes from Gary. All right, the next question from Gary is, some people I've talked to believe the Lord's Supper was originally intended to be a meal rather than just a pinch of bread and a swig of the fruit of the vine. Have we reduced the Lord's Supper from its, attention, from its original intention in this way? Okay. All right, so he's talked to some people who believe the Lord's Supper was intended to be a meal. Where would they get that? Um, my my first reaction to that question is, you say it was originally intended to be uh, taken as a meal. Where did you get that opinion? I, I, you know, where do you where, where do you deduce that from? I, I would just I, I come up with a big question mark. Why would you think that? It appears to be supposition. Now we know that the the Lord gave instruction about the Lord's Supper at the Passover meal he was eating with his right. apostles. And, uh, but it's kind of interesting, Luke's account in particular, the others are not so clear about the timing of it, but notice what Luke says in Luke 22, verse 19. And it says, he took bread and gave thanks. This is Luke 22:19. He took bread and gave thanks and break it and gave to them saying, this is my body which is given for you, this do and remember to me. Likewise, also the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the New Testament in my blood, which is shed for you. That says he did it after supper. That says that these these instructions and this example of the of instituting the Lord's Supper was done after the meal of the Passover that they had been assembled to participate in. So Luke's Luke's wording there, the others are not clear on that. The others sort of say as they were eating which could be a vague, I mean, that would be vague and not identifiable, but Luke is pretty clear in saying that he did this after supper. Yeah. So I, I would I would make that argument. Now, I like what Chris in the U.K. said, and I assume that guest 761 is Chris. Chris. 761 is in the U.K. I assume it's Chris. If it's not, you can let me know in the chat room. 
Uh, I like what Chris says here. Yes, it was instituted at a meal, but Paul, did Paul have a meal in Acts 20? Now, that's interesting because they came together to break bread in Acts 20, verse 7. But you remember Eutychus fell asleep, fell out the window, died. They brought him back to life. And then Paul went and ate a meal. Yeah, so they they were they they had come together to observe the, on the first day of the week they had come together. Acts twenty verse seven says on the first day of the week when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul preached to them, ready to depart on the morrow, and continued his speech till midnight. So yeah. this was the assembly. They had come together to take the Lord's supper. This was the assembly. Yeah. Paul preached a long time. Eutychus fell out of the window and died. Well, or at least they assumed he was dead. Paul revived yeah, him, right? At least. Uh, yeah. Uh, and then Paul went up again. The assembly obviously had disassembled. <laughs> That'll sort of break us. <laughs> yeah, break, break up. up a church meeting, won't it? Yeah. Uh, and uh, then he ate. Uh, then, then he took common, a common food yeah. uh, and left them on the morrow. Yeah. Uh, so I think I, I would agree with Chris. I think Acts 20 uh, sort of argues against that. But no. I, t- I tell you what, I think it's the strongest. Well, Chris goes on and makes that argument. I think you're supposed to. Uh, also, the Lord's Supper is not to satiate hunger, but to remember the Lord. In line with that, we are told to take two things, the bread broken for you and the cup of the new covenant. I think you're headed to the same place that Jeff in the chat room is, and guest 597 was yeah. headed as Jeff, well. Jeff, that's you, Jeff, isn't it? Jeff, uh, running Jeff. the board, he's in the chat room, and he's making, he, Jeff, you're exactly right. The warning is made in First Corinthians 11. You want to talk about it? Go ahead. Uh, it's made there about um, if you're hungry to uh, eat at home, which makes makes it sound like it's not this It's not a meal. Okay. Yeah, I, right. I, I think that's the strongest argument, Jeff. I really do. Uh, Paul starts out there, verse 20, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 20. When you come together, therefore, into one place, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper. No, now, understand the context. It should have been, yeah. but they weren't. They're were messing it up. They should have been coming together to eat the Lord's Supper, but they weren't. What they were doing, everyone... Eat, uh, eating, everyone take it before another his own supper. One is hungry, another is drunken. What have you not houses to eat and drink in? Or despise ye the church of God and shame them that have not? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I praise you not. And he goes on and talks about how the Lord's Supper should properly be observed. And he concludes the whole thing in verse 34 by saying, If any man hunger, let him eat at home, that you come not together unto condemnation. So I would say first, I'm with Jeff. I think First Corinthians 11 strongly argues against the idea that the Lord's Supper was taken as a meal. All right. It's a memorial. It's not a meal to satiate hunger, as Chris said. And I think that's exactly right. Okay. So, again, I would go back to the question that Gary asked. He said, I've talked to people who believe that the Lord's Supper was originally intended to be a meal rather than just a pinch of bread and a swig of the fruit of the vine. Well, why do they believe that? How would they establish the original intention as being that? They have no Bible basis. They do. They do not. Okay. All right. That one went a little faster than Reggie's question, but it was a good one, Gary. Thank you. And next we go to Chris in the U.K. Yeah, and this one might go a little faster. True. Chris is in the chat room, I think, and uh, and uh, has emailed us as well. Thank you, Chris. Uh, he says, in Britain, we, I got this back two weeks, two weeks ago tomorrow. He's in Britain. We are celebrating the start of the First World War. It was a long war, though, so they're prob- they would still be, you know, it's not too late to talk about Maybe. it. Maybe. He said, okay. I have no problem commemorating the fallen, but is it right to remember the start of a war? Or is it right to dwell on acts like 9-11 or 7-7 or the assassination of Martin Luther King? So what was 7-7? You know what 7-7 is? 7-7 is England's 9-1-1. 
This there oh, night yeah, okay. seven seven oh five. There okay. was a series of subway bombings, yes, okay. and, a, and a bus station terminal was bombed, and yeah. I think something like fifty two people or something were killed. But okay. that that was their equivalent of our nine eleven okay. in New York City. Okay. Uh, so that they call it seven seven. We call ours nine eleven. They call theirs seven seven. And Chris is asking, is it right f- to dwell on those kind of things? What do you think? Well, definitely don't have, uh, well, you know, we'd have, I guess it would fall into the area of liberty, uh, whether or not you dwell on those things. Um, yeah, I, 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 wouldn't I, wanna... I, hadn't really, I hadn't really thought too much about this, but I think it's an interesting question because there's undoubtedly, as Christians, we're supposed to be peace-loving people. Sure. Uh, Romans chapter 12, verse 19, dearly beloved, avenge not yourself, give wrath, give, rather give place to wrath. For it is written, I, vengeance is mine, I will repay, say the Lord. As much as lieth in you, verse 18, uh, live peaceably with all men. We're not to be a bitter, vengeful people. I, and I'm not saying that, that memorials, uh, uh, war memorials are necessarily that. But I suppose that that would be the question that you have to ask. Why are you doing what's this? Your, what's your intention? Yeah, what's, what's in your heart? Yeah. What, what are you yeah. trying to accomplish with this? Yeah. I think most memorials of that nature, and by the way, I, I saw uh, back earlier in the summer was the, what, the uh, 70th, is that, am, I, am I thinking right, 50 and, yeah, it was the, back earlier in the summer was the 70, 70th anniversary of the invasion of France from England, the D-Day, mm-hmm. uh, when, they, when they stormed the beaches of Normandy. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was quite elaborate ceremony conducted there at Normandy in France. And I, I, but what's interesting was that those who were enemies at the time of the war were together for the for the commemoration. And I really think that that was just sort of honoring what the sacrifices that men made in the cause. I don't think it was intended as a, a war mongering activity right. because you had the former enemies. So I think it would go to what's your purpose, what's your intention, what's in your heart uh, in regards to those things. And Travis in the chat room asked if Romans 14 verse 5 would help. One person esteems one day above another, <clears throat> another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. Perhaps it does. I think those are religious days perhaps, uh, but uh, some religious significance. But I do think that this would potentially fall in the area of liberty. Yeah, as and, long as you've got your attitude right, and and I think and I think Chris in, in UK would probably agree with this. We're grateful for the things that men have done that have made our that have blessed our lives. We're the we're the beneficiaries <clears throat> of what people before us have done, yeah. and to remember them and to be grateful. I don't think is a bad thing. But but I'm with Chris. I don't want to celebrate the start of a war. You know, yeah, I mean, yeah. I, oh, it's it's a great day. They started hey, man, a war. We had a All war. right. Yeah, no, not, not, that's not yeah, for me. Yeah. But okay. I typically don't think that that's what those things are about. I right. think they're they're just honoring the people who served, not necessarily saying it was a great thing we had a war. And guess 761 is, uh, uh, Chris, he says it's not memorials, it's the thinking of the start of a war uh, I'm asking yeah. about. And I yeah. would agree, Chris. I mean, there's we don't want to celebrate the fact that men uh, misbehaved and started a war. So uh, there you go. Hey, uh, I've got an email in the in the chat We've room, got Anthony. one coming in. We've got a hot one coming in. No, Anthony says he – and I got this email just as the program was starting. And so we – we uh, uh, let me read what Anthony says. He says, if if by this you were questioning celebrating violence and death, then no, I would not personally be in favor of that. 
All of our actions send messages. Um, so in all we do, we have to be aware of the example we are setting. But there's nothing wrong in general with an individual commemorating a day as long as it's not in violation of some other Christian law. Okay. Jeff. Oh, that's you, Jeff. Go ahead, Jeff. Why don't you let you? Why don't you just let us hear what you're saying there? Um, I was just sort of talking about the idea of how when that happened in 9/11, for instance, how we sort of had a humility and slash anger. However, we have no way of knowing if God actually did that to punish or if that was an act of providence for um, for the U.S. However, what it did do, and by viewing and remembering that. It does turn our minds back towards God and realize that we're not untouchable. Okay, so there could be some benefits to uh, to remembering that good. And we need to get a break. Uh, yeah, let, let me back up just a minute. To, I didn't get Anthony's answer on the Lord's Supper question. Yeah. He said, clearly when Jesus instituted it, they were in the midst of a meal. However, there were other foods and possibly beverages present at that meal since it was passport. The clear instruction we have now as Christians is to partake only of the bread and fruit of the vine. The quantity of these items is not specified. It's a matter of judgment as to the quantity. I think that's a good point. That's a judgment question. How much, you know, you could take a bigger piece. We could all take a bigger piece. We could all take a drink, bigger drink. Quantity is not specified. Okay. Uh, I suppose it could not be argued that the partaking of meal-sized portions of the emblems would be sinful. However, the focus of the supper clearly is not on the physical. Its point is not to satisfy hunger. It's a spiritual exercise carried out physically. I would think this is why such small quantities are used today. Also, cost, efficiency, and decorum are considerations. A large meal would be costly, time-consuming, potentially rather uncouth. Having said that, I personally take a much, large, a much larger than average piece of bread because I do want my senses to be fully engaged, which is not possible for me if I take a microscopic fi- flake of cracker. Okay. All right. All right. Thank you, Anthony. And, uh, well, Chris uh, says, he says, armistice and such like are valid, but to celebrate a war starting is his question. I think I can see where you're yeah, coming from, Chris, I'm, and I think I'd agree with that. Yeah. I think we're, I think we're on the same page there, Chris. Thank you, Chris. Chris is keeping some late hours there tonight, but we're glad that you're listening, Chris. And if it's insomnia you're suffering from, you've come to the right place. We can help you with that. <laughs> and uh, we're going to take a break and get this week's bullet point. Uh, we have three questions to go on the other side, and those are rather in-depth. Uh, what about unclean spirits? Today? You know, in the New Testament, they were going around all over the place. They are coming across these folks that were possessed by unclean spirits. Still got them today? What about those? And then we want to know about, uh, well, there's an interesting statement about the commission of fornication, that it is a sin against your own body. Had a question about that, and we've got one about what happened to Jesus after he died. So we've got a long way to go. When we get back, we'll look forward to your thoughts. Don't go anywhere. We'll continue right after this. These guys are doing all of the talking. We need to hear from you. Call in now. The virtual Bible study continues right after this. This is Greg Gwynn with this week's bullet point. Several passages of the New Testament command us to demonstrate hospitality. For instance, in Romans 12, verse 13, it says for us to be given to hospitality. This is so important that even the qualifications of elders include the instruction that they are to be men who are hospitable. Read 1 Timothy 3, 2 and Titus 1, verse 8. We fear that some Christians have excused themselves from this responsibility by a particular definition of the word hospitality. Various Greek authorities are quoted and an attempt is made to force our understanding of the word to mean exclusively love of strangers. Usually some explanation is given about the morally corrupt conditions that existed in the public ends of the first century. Christians who traveled, we are told, were in desperate need of accommodations that were free from these temptations and evil influences. Thus the command was given to be hospitable, meaning to entertain traveling strangers. 
This standard explanation usually goes further to suggest that the command had no application to one's own acquaintances. It seems that this view fails to include the total concept of hospitality. The problem, as we see it, is in the assumption that since there are now adequate public accommodations, we are no longer bound by this instruction. This notion is too narrow and does not consider all that is said on the subject. 1 Peter 4 verse 9 tells us to, quote, use hospitality one to another without grudging. Thayer says that the word for hospitality means generous to guest and does not denote that these guests were strangers in every case. Indeed, the very context suggests that this sharing was among yourselves, verse 8, and to one another, verse 9. Again, that's in 1 Peter 4. Clearly, this command extends beyond the matter of caring for strangers and includes the idea of sharing with those of our own number. Christian, have you been hospitable? That's this week's bullet point. Think about it. Hello. Hey, Matt. No, I don't have any plans for Friday night. What are you doing? Oh, I won't be able to go with you to watch that movie. Because, Matt, the movie is rated R. Hey, why don't you just come over and hang out at my house Friday night? Great, I'll see you there. Being pleasing to God means that you may have to be different than the crowd. But don't be afraid to stand up for what's right. You just might find it is easier than what you expect. A message brought to you by College of Church Christ. A streaming Bible study. Why didn't I think of that? Now back to the guys. We're back on the program tonight. I want to remind you this program is brought to you by the College of Church of Christ in Columbia, Tennessee. We want you to find out more about us by visiting our website, thevirtualbiblestudy.com, or if you're in the Columbia, Tennessee area, come and visit with us. Uh, find out more about our meeting place and times at thevirtualbiblestudy.com. As we look at interesting user-submitted and supplied questions on the program tonight. All right. Question number four comes from Steve, who has just moved to Texas. Steve says, how would you use Zechariah 13, 1 through 5, to show someone the reason for unclean spirits not existing today is a fulfillment of prophecy found in 1 Corinthians 13, 8 and following? Okay. And that the passage in 1 Corinthians 13 is indeed referring to the full word of God as that which is complete. Okay. Uh, I think both of those are great passages. I don't know that they're, they are linked. I don't know that they are linked passages. But I do think Zechariah chapter 13, I don't know that everybody agrees with this usage of that text, but I think Zechariah chapter 13 uh, does prophesy the end of the miraculous age and the end of demon possession Zechariah 13, verse 1, In that day shall be a fountain open to the house of David and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. Well, what's that talking about? I think that's talking about with the salvation that would be offered through okay. Christ. All right. And it shall come to pass in that day. So in that day when this fountain for sin and uncleanness was going to be opened, in that day it shall come to pass in that day, saith the Lord of hosts, that I will cut off the names of the idols out of the land, that they shall no more be remembered, and also I will cause the prophets and the unclean spirit to pass out of that land. Mm-hmm. And it shall come to pass that when any shall prof- yet prophesy, uh, then his father and his mother that begat him shall say to him, Thou shalt not live, for thou speakest lies in the name of the Lord. And his father and his mother that begat him shall thrust him through when he prophesieth. Uh, so... Um, in a time when a fountain for sin and uncleanness was going to be opened, that's got to be talking about in the time of Christ. Okay. In that time frame, not obviously no no specific day is is stated, but in that general time frame, there would come an end to prophecy and there would come an end to unclean spirits. Mm-hmm. 
the casting out of unclean spirits was one of the miraculous gifts of the Holy Spirit in the first century. Yeah. Uh, so God was going to bring an end to his miraculous spiritual gifts. Of course, if, if demons were still allowed to possess men, then those men who were thus possessed would have no hope. And God wouldn't leave a situation like that in place. And so in, t- in the same time frame, he would do away with the ability of demons to possess men. I think that's what Zechariah 13 is talking about. Okay. So that's one that's one passage. Now, I don't think it's necessarily... Uh, I don't think it's necessarily a fulfillment of the prophecy found in 1 Corinthians 13. Yeah, I think 1 Corinthians 13 is talking about the end of the miraculous age. I just don't think these two passages are necessarily. I think they, 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 are bo- they both make an argument, okay. but I don't think that they are interconnected passages. No, okay. I don't think one passage is referring to the other. All right. 1 Corinthians 13 is a little more clear to understand, uh, though, when its fulfillment would come, perhaps. Uh, go ahead and, and go through that. Well, it tells us here. Uh, you know, they, they they were desiring to have, uh, you know, who would have the better gift. And Paul tells in 1 Corinthians 13, we know this is the love passage, that love is uh, is greater than uh, these gifts, that love will remain after uh, these uh, all these other things go away. But he says here um, in verse 8, love never fails, but whether there are prophecies, they will fail, whether there are tongues, uh, they will cease, whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. Now, there were, this is talking about miraculous gifts, and they were there until that which is perfect would come. Well, we have to look at the purpose of these miraculous gifts that they were manifesting. And we know that uh, from uh, Matthew chapter 16, verse 20, that uh, the purpose of these miracles was to confirm that the message that they were teaching from God was, in fact, his word. Because they didn't have they didn't have a new testament to verify you know when paul came preaching uh that you didn't you shouldn't commit fornication and that you shouldn't uh, be you didn't have to be circumcised they had no way to verify that what he was saying was true so he had miracles to back that up god's with me god's doing these things to show that what i'm saying is is true mark sixteen twenty says the lord worked with him confirming the word with signs okay. following all right but after the Bible came, there was no more need for those. And so it says here uh, that these things were going to be done away, for we know in part and we prophesy in part, but that when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. And so once we have the New Testament, we no longer need them. As we go on in the passage, it says, When I was a child, I spoke as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know as I am known uh, and so we see that uh, that when that which is perfect has come, it would be like looking into a mirror and seeing how uh, God sees us. Yeah. Isn't that what James tells us? Yeah. Uh, that we're looking into that perfect law of liberty. Uh, and so um, uh, I think we have uh, an indication. I think, I think you're all exactly right. Exactly okay. right. Now, come, there is come. an argument that uh, that when that which is perfect has come means Christ. He's come when he comes at the end yeah okay so he says we know in part and we prophesy in part but when that which is perfect is come then that which is in part shall be done away what is the perfect in verse 10 is the question okay but notice how you would think about this we know in part we prophesy in part what was what was the part yeah the part was knowledge understanding of god's will right yeah therefore the the perfect or complete of what they had in part yep 
would be the complete understanding and knowledge of God's will. Yeah. Yeah. So we know in part, we prophesy in part. It's like here's a piece of the pie. We got a yeah. piece of the pie. Yeah. It's a strawberry pie. Yeah. yeah. What's the whole pie? It's a strawberry pie. Right. It's yeah. one. In other words, I said I got a piece of the pie now, and I'm hoping to have the whole pie. Yeah. Well, what am I hoping for? Yeah. I'm not hoping for a barbecue sandwich. <laughs> I have a piece of the strawberry pie. I'm hoping to have the whole pie. I'm hoping to have a yeah. whole strawberry pie. Yep. So when he says we know in part and we prophesy part, we have partial knowledge now. But when the perfect is come, when the complete, the word perfect meaning yep. complete, when the complete is come. Then that which is in part shall be done away. When the complete is come, is come, we won't need these things anymore. Yeah. The complete is the same as the part. It is the, of the same kind as the part which they had. Yep. Right. Yep. And we have a further verification that your explanation is correct as we go on in the passage at verse thirteen. Now abideth faith, hope, love; these three, but the greatest of these is love. When that which is perfect comes, we're going to have faith, hope, and love. Yeah. But now when Jesus comes, we will have neither faith nor hope. Because in Romans chapter 8, verse 24, we are saved by hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man seeth, why doth he yet hope for? So hope will be done away with when Jesus comes again. And so will faith. Faith, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, faith is the, evi- uh, the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. When we see Jesus, we won't have faith anymore. But we will have love, and therefore Paul says the greatest of these is love because it's going to endure but, even but, after Christ but, comes. Yeah, and so he suggested that faith and hope would continue after that which is perfect has come. So Not talking about Jesus. Jesus. No. It be Jesus. And furthermore, I mean that we can keep going here. The language here doesn't is not indicative of speaking of a man. Yeah, that. That, that argument is made, but you can find other ex- really? grammatical okay. exceptions okay. in the right. New Testament too. That's more of a translational thing okay. than it is. A, All right. So I don't. I've never felt that. In other words, he doesn't say when he doesn't say when he that is perfect is come. He says when that which is perfect is come. And sometimes we make the argument that he, he would have said when he that is perfect is come. Then these partial things will be done with. You can find some exceptions. Yeah, but that's a grammatical but thing, and I think, don't. We don't need that. We don't need that, and okay. I don't think that's our strongest argument. Okay. All right. Okay. All right, we need to go on, take a break. Let's see here in the chat room, uh, James 125. Uh, Travis is submitting that. Uh, James 125, I believe, is the passage I was looking for there in James with looking into the perfect law of liberty, yes, and continuing therein. And um, uh, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise and simple. Psalm 19, verse 7. Thank you, Travis, for that. 761 says, like the miracles accompanying Moses to confirm the law and Elijah and Elisha to confirm the prophets. That's right. The miracles were for uh, the confirmation but of the then, word. But then Chris asked, would that mean that the Bible is imperfect? No, it means that when Paul penned 1 Corinthians 13, the, the New Testament was not complete. The revelation wasn't finished when he said that. But he was saying these gifts will continue until the revelation is complete. Yes. We now they didn't believe, have a perfect revelation. They have partial. Ha- yeah. Now we believe we have the perfect, complete revelation of God, and therefore the gifts are ended. I hope we made that clear. Yeah. No, the Bible is not imperfect, nor is uh, what they had at the time imperfect. It was not complete. Right. And imperfect uh, can mean complete as well. Yeah. And so I think he's referencing the complete revelation of God's word. Okay. And as well. All right. Let's get a break. When we get back, we've got a lot of ground to cover. Uh, we've got to talk about uh, what happens when one commits fornication and uh, what did, where did Jesus go when he died. Don't go anywhere. We'll continue right after this. You won't want to miss what we talk about next. The discussion continues right after these important messages. 
Hi, I'm Jack Coleman, a member of the College View Church of Christ, with a suggestion for you and your family. Why not turn off the TV on Thursday nights and gather the family around the computer for an hour of in-depth Bible study? The virtual Bible study always involves subjects of importance and interest to serious Bible students. So, why not join this Internet Bible study group every Thursday night? We're tracking the trends on the virtual Bible study. More than $13 billion worth of goods are stolen from retailers each year. That's more than $35 million per day. There are approximately 27 million shoplifters, or one out of every 11 people in our nation today. Approximately 25% of shoplifters are kids, 75% are adults. 55% of adult shoplifters say they started shoplifting in their teens. 89% of kids say they know other kids who shoplift. 66% say they hang out with those kids. That information is via the National Learning and Resource Center. The Word of God says in Ephesians 4, verse 28, Let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor, working with his hands the thing which is good, that he may have to give to him that needeth. For he hath said, I will never leave thee, nor forsake thee, so that we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper, and I will not fear what man shall do unto me. Hebrews 13, verses 5 and 6. The virtual Bible study continues. We're back on the program, going top to, to the top of the hour, and we're going fast. Uh, we got a question from Sarfo. All right, Sarfo, and I'm not sure where Sarfo, S-A-R-F-O, Sarfo Jacob. I don't know where he's from, but I, 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 for some reason I'm thinking maybe Philippines, will, will, maybe we'll find out. Okay. Uh, he asked the question, what is the meaning when God says that when one commits fornication, he or she sins against his own body? Yes. Uh, I think that's the hard, one of the hardest questions we've had on the virtual Bible study. And I'm not, I'm not, I'm not confident of an answer there. This may be one of those uh, I don't know. Let's go on. Kind of, uh, situation. Uh, Are you going to do a lot of waving of your arms here and yeah. distracting? Yeah, okay. Chris in UK says it is. Is it? Is it? He's asking questions too. Like maybe he's not sure. I don't think any of us can be absolutely sure. Is it because unlike other sins, it is a sin that has to involve your and another's body? Yeah, there's something about that, and I don't. I don't know what that is exactly. If any of you in the, uh, uh, in the chat room can help uh, help us out. Anthony says, it is in the sense that our body is the temple of God. So when we defile our body, we're sinning against the temple, which is ourselves. Uh, clears mud, he asked. Well, yeah, but I, I is think it's along those lines. It's in, that context. it's in that context. And I think it's a, it, it may perhaps represent a defilement of, of the purpose of our body and, that God has given us and our holy calling. Yeah. Uh, let me let me just it's read. A, it's against that that uh, that purpose he has for our body. Here's Mike Willis's commentary on First Corinthians, and this is what he says about that context. He's he's, he's actually quoting others. Uh, he said, "The body one must remember is designed to serve and glorify God. Any use of the body which interferes with this is unnatural. Fornication, like marriage, brings a man and a woman into a relation so close and powerful that they may almost said to be a mingling of personality." To form such a union with a harlot must render impossible the carrying out of the true purpose of the body and sever the higher union with Christ. The, far, the far-reaching consequences of the union between man and woman must either serve God's purposes as they do in a true Christian marriage or utterly wreck them. Okay. So I, I, I think that's, I mean, obviously it, there, there's something very unique about that relationship between a man and a woman, and uh, it, it certainly has devastating consequences to an individual's spiritual relationship with God. Yeah, Anthony in the chat room has also chimed in. He says it's almost like against nature. It's a transgression of the intent of our bodies, which are the temple of God. Yeah. 
But he says I, that's hard to artic- articulate. I think so, too. I think that's, very, that's a tough passage. Uh, but I would just argue that Paul is saying that is so, – I think we can draw some firm conclusions. One thing is that is not a thing to be taken lightly. Right. You know, in our in our age and in our culture, people commit fornication with absolute abandon. That's funny. And, yeah, and uh, yeah. so uh, – Paul is saying this is serious business. Right. Uh, you could take that away, even if you don't understand the full implications of, of the way he expressed yeah, it. Don't go, don't go playing with that. All right. Uh, and a question from Anthony. All right. Finally, how much time we got? Oh yeah. Okay, we got good time. Anthony, who's in the chat room, asks, "Where did Jesus?" Two questions about the death of Jesus. Mm-hmm. First, where did Jesus go when he died? I can answer that one. Give me that. He went to Hades. In uh, Acts chapter 2. Uh, well, well, first, before you, I want you to do Acts 2, let me back up a little bit earlier. Okay. He went to Hades, and specifically he went to the part of Hades described as paradise because he told the thief on the cross in Luke 23, verse 43, this day thou shalt be with me in paradise. All right. So we know he went. He went, he went to, to a place called Paradise. That place must be a part of Hades because in Acts chapter two verse thirty-one, speaking of David prophesying, uh, he foreseen this spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. So his flesh went into the grave. His soul went into Hades, and, and his flesh didn't rot in the grave. Right, and his soul didn't stay in Hades. Okay, so. So he went to Hades. He he went he went to you know in the in the story of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke sixteen it's not called paradise it's called Abraham's bosom okay but it's a place of comfort when 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 the soul departs the body all go to Hades you know I think the a lot of people when they hear the word Hades they relate that to to the bad place hell yeah but it's not Hades is not necessarily that in Hades there are two realms there's a place of comfort paradise Abraham's bosom. Yeah. And there's a place of torment where the rich man went, and he was in such agony, he wanted just a drip of cool water placed on his tongue. Yeah. So in Hades, there are two parts. There's torment and there's comfort. Jesus went to the place of comfort called paradise or Abraham's bosom. He His spirit was there while his body was in the grave. The resurrection involved the reuniting of his spirit and his physical body, and he was and he was resurrected. Yeah. So I think that's pretty clear where Jesus went while he was dead. Right. Okay. All right. Now, uh, question two. When Jesus was on the cross, did God abandon him and or did he become completely human? For example, could he have called 10,000 angels? What about that? Uh well, he references. Uh, no let, let me give you a little more clarification. I got a, another email from Anthony here. He, he says, "I've heard preachers insist that God forsook Jesus while He was on the cross, and therefore He was powerless. Yet we sing that He could have stopped the whole thing at any time. Uh, I'm not sure which view is supported by Scripture. However, I will be the first to say that I don't know that it matters. I actually think it does matter. I mean, I, I, Jesus." sacrifice was a willing sacrifice i mean uh he actually said i think it's in john 10 he said uh uh no man see uh uh he says no man take i lay down my life verse 17 john 10 17 i lay down my life that i might take it again no man taketh it from me but i lay it down of myself i have the power to lay it down i have the power to take it again 
So Jesus was in control of that situation, and he said, I'm doing this voluntarily. I have the power to lay this down. No one can take it, my life, but I can lay it down. And he said he did. All right. Uh, no doubt Anthony is referencing the fact that God, uh, the question about whether or not God abandoned him, uh, what Jesus said in uh, Matthew chapter 27, verse 46, uh, the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? All right. Uh, a lot of speculation about that expression there in Matthew 27, verse 46, why have you forsaken me? Actually, what we find out is that Jesus was quoting Psalm 22. And uh, Psalm 22 starts out, verse 1, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Uh So Jesus was directly quoting Psalm 22. Then as you go on and read in Psalm 22, you find out that this was a depiction of the crucifixion of the Messiah. He says in verse 7, they see, they that see me laugh me to scorn. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head saying he trusted on the Lord that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him saying he delighteth in him. Yep. It's a very clear. S- skip down to verse 14. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted and melted in the midst of my bowels. My strength is dried up like a pot shirt and my tongue cleaveth my jaws. And thou hast brought me into the dust of death. He's describing the death of the Savior. Especially notice verse 18. Look at verse they, 16. They pierced my hands and my feet. Yeah. Okay. Verse 18. They part my garments among them and cast lots upon my vesture. Mm-hmm. So Psalm 22 is a depiction of the of the sacrificial death of the Messiah. Yeah. So I think the best explanation of Jesus saying, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He was quoting Psalm 22 so that everybody who would hear it would know, hey, that's what's going on here. Yeah. That, this is the fulfillment of that prophetic Psalm 22. And as you go along in Psalm 22, you realize that God had not forsaken him; that yeah. God was faithful to him. Yeah. All right. So I really, th- I don't think, and I don't think that he, you know, I, I don't, you know, the argument you know, that people build sort of a hierarchy of argumentation here. God had to forsake him in order for him to assume the sins of all mankind and die the horrible death. God had to forsake him and let it have. God had to turn his back on Jesus while he hung on the cross and all that. That's I, I I just think that's a sort of imaginary construction. I mean, that's, yeah. a, that's a product of imagination. Uh, Anthony mentions, could he have called down ten thousand angels? You know, we sing that song. He could have called ten thousand angels. Yeah, I don't know who came up with the number ten thousand. This is Matthew twenty six. Yeah, and Matthew twenty six verse fifty three. You may remember when they came to arrest Jesus, Simon Peter mm-hmm. pulled out the sword and. And struck off the ear of the high priest servant. Yeah. And Jesus told him, uh, put up again thy sword into his place. Uh, and then he says, thinkest thou that I cannot now pray to my father and he shall presently give me more than 12 legions of angels. But how then shall the scripture be fulfilled that thus it must be? Jesus said, I could stop this. I could call down 12 legions of angels. But then. What good would that? Then we wouldn't be we wouldn't be fulfilling what needs to be fulfilled here. Basically, yeah. was this argument? Yeah. Well, a legion. He said, "I could call down twelve legions of angels." Do you know how many were in a typical Roman legion? A lot. A lot. You know, take a guess. Uh, don't know. Five thousand four hundred. Whoa! So a lot more than ten thousand. Yeah. So five thousand four hundred in one legion times twelve. Is sixty four thousand eight hundred. He could have called sixty. Yeah, but that one, that song just one where he could have called 
6,400, 64,800. Plus or minus. <laughs> yeah. So we couldn't sing the song, okay. but I, I don't know where the number 10,000 came up with, but it was okay. 12 legions. Okay. All right. Well, very good. Uh, well, I guess if you can call 64,000, you can call 10,000. Sure. So it's still yeah. accurate. Yeah. All right. Good questions. Good answers tonight. Uh, Travis, uh, yeah, John references Psalm 22, which is a psalm of victory. Thank you, John. Uh, for that. Um, and Travis says, uh, but he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. So, yeah, uh, yeah certainly he did. And yeah. certainly we have a great, uh, great victory in his sacrifice. And we appreciate uh, that. Uh, that comment. Did All you right. mention John in the chat room? I did mention John. Okay. And John also says Hades is essentially referring to the realm of the dead. Right. Anthony agrees that he sees what you mean about it mattering. Um, okay. All right. So I think we got it. We actually got through on time. We did. Amazing. Uh, good comments and discussion tonight. We appreciate uh, appreciate that, Dad. Thank you for your time. Thank you. And appreciated your explanations of those those important questions. We didn't get. Did we get all of Chris's? I don't think we did. Uh, did he mention on that legions? Uh, In the chat room, he mentions it was twelve legions and a legion. He says could be between six hundred and six thousand. There was there were different numbers in legions, but I, I got the uh, what I found in my research was that it was the typical number was fifty four hundred. Okay, thank you for that, uh, John, uh, Jeff. Thank you for being here tonight. Appreciated your comments and your help. Thank you, and thank you for listening to the program. We hope you benefited in, uh, from our discussion and study of God's Word, and we hope you'll make plans to be back here this time next week for another edition of the virtual Bible study. In the meantime, we encourage you to put God first in your life, uh, study His inspired Word, the Bible, and live by it every day. You'll never regret it. Thanks for listening to the virtual Bible study brought to you by the College View Church of Christ. The College View Church of Christ meets at 1618 Hampshire Pike in Columbia, Tennessee. If you are in the Columbia, Tennessee area, we encourage you to worship with the College View Church of Christ on Sunday mornings at 930 and on Sunday evenings at 6 o'clock. The College View Church of Christ also welcomes you to attend their Wednesday night Bible studies at 7 o'clock. If you have any questions about something that was said on tonight's broadcast or would like more information about the College College View Church of Christ, please call 931-381-4567. That number again, 931-381-4567. Or for more information on the internet, visit collegeview.com. Be sure to tune into the virtual Bible study this time next Thursday for another informative study of God's Word.